A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnervlog. James, good morning to you. Good morning, Andrew. Did you remember to uh, plug your microphone in today? I'm just asking because it's important to check people remember the kind of basic tenets of their job, you know? Of course. Of course. I did remember. You to- connected to the internet? I did. Amazing. I- do you keep some sort of list to help you with this stuff? I just know it. You know, it's part and parcel of what I do. It's so ingrained in in everything that I just simply couldn't forget. Such a right. fundamental part of, of my job. I don't know how it would be possible for anybody to to do anything like that. Do you? Sure. I don't know. You know, I'm trying to think if I was a firefighter. Got your hose. be a day where I just forgot to put the fire out. Yeah. You know, I drove up to the burning building and I saw the flames and I heard the screams and the, then I just, you know, absentmindedly drove away again. Bebar, bebar. <laughs> Often you're, yeah. You know, when you walk into a room and you're like, what did I come in here for? Yes. That, you know, Lee Mason had that exact experience. What am I doing in here again? What? It doesn't matter. Give, give a goal, I guess. What is that? What's that big green thing they're all standing on? I honestly, I mean, who who knows what happened in that in that mind in that moment? I am suspicious. I won't lie to you. I'm suspicious. I have concerns that are nagging away at me around Andrew, this thing. That's as much ludicrous. as we, everyone knows, <laughs> our title rivals, Manchester City, are whiter than white. They are innocent until proven guilty, as Pep Guardiola made very clear the other day. They are. Or even this though is they've a already clean fight. They've already been found guilty, apparently, even though they're innocent until proven guilty, according to Pep, anyway. Yes. So so guilty. I think I think we can find Lee Mason guilty. I'm not sure Lee Mason warrants a trial. Do you think it's just straight to Firing Straight squad. to execution, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's extraordinary. I, I, I know that you're uh, suspicious. I watched Match of the Day this morning yeah. belatedly, and I found their argument um, quite compelling, where they basically said he panicked because it took so long to check the first one. And while that is, of course woefully insufficient as an explanation or excuse, I do find it quite plausible, to be honest. Sometimes it takes so long to put one fire out that you just have to let the next house burn down. That's the first rule of firefighting. <laughs> I like, I don't even know where to start on this because I am um, like genuinely, 
even by the standards of PGMOL, even by the standards of Lee Mason, even by some of the decisions that we saw this weekend was like, there were fucking fires all over the place. And the firefight, the firemen were turning up and just letting them burn. Mm. Scorched earth policy. Have, in, you, have in, you heard the referee. good news, by the way, about John Brooks, the uh, video assistant referee for the Brighton game? Oh, the guy who drew the line in the wrong place. Yes. Right. What's he, the good news? He is on scheduled to be on VAR duty, <laughs> no, I believe, no. for Arsenal's match against Manchester City on Wednesday. Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, where do you What if start? our centre-backs, our defenders, carry big, wide poles? You know, like uh, tightrope walkers. So okay. effectively, they are their own line. <laughs> Would that work? It might do. Remember George Graham used to tie the back four together in training and, you know, to, yeah. to synchronise their movements. Maybe Mikel Arteta will have to do something like that. Um, I mean, I'll just say now, I mean, I've seen that news online. Um, so it is secondhand information, but I, I imagine it is true. There's no better place to get information than it's fake. online. It's everything on Twitter true, right? Um, mm. That can't happen. It, can it? I mean, it it can. It shouldn't. But would you be surprised if it did? Well, there's a summit, isn't there? There's some sort of summit. Howard Webb has taken time off from appearing on Sky Sports yeah. with Gary Flirting Neville. with Carragher yeah. and Neville. And now and, he's going to have a meeting. What's he going to say? Lads, will you stop being so shit? Come on. You know, you can, you can well, do better than that. Can't yeah, I think you? we talked about it a week or two ago, like when does he actually start? And it turns out he has started mid-season, but I was reading a couple of pieces today that were kind of saying that he's relatively powerless as to what he can change at the midpoint of a season. Um, certainly in terms of personnel, there are some you know limitations uh, placed on him until the summer. So I was like, oh, well, in the summer, he'll sort things out. But the summer is too late us you don't draw any um any line between him starting mid-season and the refereeing going off a fucking cliff andrew i always draw lines drawing lines is imperative i never forget to draw my lines yeah ever so if there's a line to be drawn then i draw the line at not drawing the line but um you're no lee mason that's for sure I've forgotten what your actual question was. I was so excited about you saying the phrase, I, I draw a line. Um, yeah, I was sort of making an off-the-cuff remark about him starting mid-season and then the refereeing standards slipping drastically, even from their already low position. And I know we're actually... I know we're joking around on this a little bit, but I, I don't think it's really that funny because... You know, it's two points, two really valuable points. And I know we'll talk about the game. And I know that there is the possibility that without that, uh, you know, even if that goal had been chalked off, Brentford could have got another goal. They, you know, it's possible. Of course, it wasn't the last kick of the game. No, yeah. but I do think, you know, this is a, like there's two people in the fucking VAR booth. There's two of them. Why... Didn't the other guy say, 
hey, you know the you know the thing that we're supposed to do with the the lines. You should do do the lines thing. I know. I I, I mean, genuinely an extraordinary degree of incompetence. Uh, and it, it is two points. And it's not beyond the realms of possibility that two points could be the difference for Arsenal yeah, this season. It, um, it could. And, and, you know, I'm sure we'll get on to talking about the game more generally. And, and I would be the first to say that I think Brentford were certainly good value for at least a draw in this game. Like if you were looking at it on the balance of play and sure, sure. chances... You know, I'm not sure it's a game Arsenal could come away from and say, well, we absolutely deserve the points. But winning a title um, often means winning several games of that nature where mm-hmm. you're potentially second best and yet manage to get over the line. And Arsenal will feel mm. that they might well have done that on Saturday. I mean, you um, were you were in the press conference afterwards right because you were working at the game and you were there yeah. and um i didn't see the press conference but i read it and i saw Mikel arteta on on match of the day but i mean would it be fair to say that he was i mean look i saw him i was sitting about fucking 20 feet away from him the entire game so i could see how exercised he was getting at certain points mm. throughout the day i imagine the frustration he felt when he saw that goal go in and then be given you know having you know, finished the game, um, seen that it was offside, spoken about it to the press, like the frustration must have been palpable. I I can only imagine what the mood was like in Casa Arteta on Saturday night when it started emerging that that this, this, uh, what do you call it? What do you even say? This like egregious, um, I don't know what you call it, Incompetence, oversight. I mean, mean, at best, it's an oversight. (laughs) Yeah. At best, it is an oversight. Um, Which, you know, again, I find it very hard to believe that two officials both forgot to draw the line. So, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I think at best, it's an oversight. But he must have been absolutely apoplectic when when he found out that. He was. I, I'll be honest, though. In his press conference, he was he was very definitive about mm. being offside. But he was almost, and if you watch the footage back, he almost kind of laughed because he was like, I got the sense of he was completely incredulous about it. You know, he almost couldn't believe it. And he was asked, like, where did you think the offside was? And he was like, well, which one? Yeah. Like, he felt that there was a a case for offside uh, against Pinnock, which obviously VAR spent a long time looking at and decided wasn't interfering. But then there's the second uh, which one. Which is wrong, by the way, because yeah, it was. And the second one, which is that they didn't even look at. Um, I mean, we could go further and look at the free kick, which is given, um, which <laughs> is not subject to the video, but which I think is very generous to Brentford. I mean, you know, it's clever centre-forward play, but the referee absolutely buys that it's it's quite funny you say that because the image that i i mocked up or or just put together for for this particular episode is basically that it's ivan tony with his arms behind his right behind saliba's back i mean it's one of those where you know it could go either way i mean i don't think it can go or should go to the attacker um it's probably more of a free kick to arsenal than it is to brentford and maybe one of those that 
that the referee should just let go because it's it's a tussle between two players who were having a good battle all day. And look, I thought Ivan Tony, as annoying as he was in the particularly in the latter stages of the game, um, was brilliant. I thought that was perhaps the best anyone I've seen play against William Saliba who had a really difficult day. And look, that will happen when you're a young centre-half. I think this is, you know, the sort of day that he will learn a lot from. But Tony was absolutely brilliant uh, for Brentford. But that's never a free kick. Never a free kick. I I, I agree, by the way. I thought it was brilliant. I saw the comparison made. I don't think it's a lazy one, uh, that it was kind of a Drogba-esque performance. And I think that's true in terms of the, the outlet he provided his team. Uh, it was quite extraordinary. He's bigger than I thought he was. Very first, tall. First time I've seen him in um, the flesh, so to speak. Yes. Well, he's very tall, incredibly good in the air. Mm. We'll, we'll probably feel, uh, even though his goal was offside, he may sh- he probably should have left the Emirates Stadium with a, a, a different one anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was incredibly fired up. I don't know how much of that you could see from your vantage point, but he was really sort of getting into his teammates, you know, for not making runs beyond him. And mm. I think he'd had a poor game for Brentford in their last league match. And he and his manager had spoken about that right. build-up. And he came in very fired up. And it was a, a tough day for Saliba. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the officiating... I'll be honest. I, 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 As you know, it's not my... Uh, hobby horse, it's not my favourite topic, but I, I felt quite sort of nauseated when it became clear mm. ha- the degree to which Arsenal had been robbed of some very precious points. Um, Same. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the game and maybe we'll save further discussion of the VAR thing. You know, for we've got some questions, I'm sure, uh, about this as well. But it is i mean it's a, it's been a staggering weekend for the premier league in terms of officiating because the brighton one you already mentioned the thing that happened in our game which is you know essentially an inexplicable um and completely and utterly unacceptable at this level you know because the whole thing about var and offside is like it either is or it isn't they're the easy ones they the oh look maybe it's only half an arm but by the letter of the law you know, so to to miss out on that and to miss out on it because you know the the guy basically forgot to do his job is just, yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Uh, but yeah. then there's Don't the Thomas Suchek making a, yeah, a great a save for West Ham, and then the the fucking the the red card, the second yellow card for the Wolves dude. Oh yeah, who's that, Lamina? Andrew, he was the third man to approach the referee. Everyone knows. The third man to approach the referee gets booked. What? The, I mean, what the fuck is that? Did that guy just make that up? I don't know. That looked as suspect to me as anything. You know, why book that player and not the others? I don't know. Uh, I was very uneasy with that. But, yeah, it, it was a terrible weekend for the PGMOL and for the Premier League, really. I think yeah. it damages, you know, we speak about everything going on with Man City potentially damaging the integrity and the value of the the league as a product. But of course, the standard officiating is part of that too. And there is an inequality between the quality of the football and the amount of money that's invested and the the quality of the officiating Mm. at this point in time. 
And it did, you know, it sort of felt like when we'd scored, it felt like this could well be the kind of game that we don't play very well in, but we grind out a, in inverted commas, uh, title contending 1-0 win. You know, one of those mm-hmm. that everybody talks about, that you have these games during a season like that. Um, and look, we have to look at ourselves. We can't just blame VAR. We can't just blame Lee Mason, although I feel like, um, you know, that's not unfair or unreasonable. You know, there are questions to ask about the way that we played and, you know, could we have done more so a decision like this isn't as damaging? For sure. But, you know, to get into that position, and look, here's the other thing, and I said this to you on Saturday night, is in the context of this season, in the context of Brentford's current form and what they've done in other games against big teams this season, they've beaten Man City, they've beaten Liverpool, they've beaten Manchester United, they've drawn with Chelsea, and even um, you know when you look at some of the games which are tough, but against not big teams like Spurs, they drew with Spurs as well. So I, I think as difficult as it is, maybe if you can step back or if we can step back and look at four points from six against this Brentford side, it's not bad. But of course, in the moment and in the heat of what's happening with Wednesday's game coming up and the title race and everything else, it does feel really damaging and painful to drop points at home. But you you have to acknowledge as well that Brentford are a very good team who played really well on Saturday. We are having, I think, a little blip mm-hmm. in form. And that's obviously going to be a point of discussion, I'm sure. So, yeah, it's hard to try and find any kind of silver lining from from the result itself, particularly because of how it came about. But, you know, I do think it is, uh, in the overall context of the season anyway, four, four points from six from Brentford is not bad. Yeah, I think, listen, you always interpret results in sequence and in context. And I think in isolation, a draw against Brentford is is not no embarrassment or anything like it. Mm. But I think obviously off the back of the defeat at Everton and ahead of the Manchester City game, a win would have been yeah. hugely valuable. I do think, uh, you know, three points for us on this game would have changed the, it would mean a different complexion to Wednesday night's fixture. Um I think it would give Arsenal a lot more comfort going into that than they currently have. I mean, we're now in a position where I think if we lose on Wednesday night, Manchester City take on top spot. So that would be a significant kind of shift in the in the title race. Yeah. Um, if I had to pull a silver lining out of it, it would only be that had Arsenal, you know, had that had Arsenal dropped points without this sense of injustice. I think that probably would have been more damaging in its own way to the spirit of the players and the fans. I think in a funny way, the the injustice of it has become very quickly a a potentially galvanising force. I think that's true. I think this could possibly be useful in a way, because we haven't been at our best. We haven't quite found our rhythm, and we'll explore perhaps some of the reasons why and team selection and all those kinds of things. But if you're Mikel Arteta and you're preparing the team for Wednesday, you're you're preparing the team for the rest of the season, you're going big on the fact that these two points were stolen. 
You know, I think that is how, if I were the manager, that's how I would be framing it. You know, Brentford, again, played well, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, we got ahead, we scored a goal. We could easily have hung on there for a 1-0 win. Instead, incompetence, whatever else you want to call it, has cost us two points. And I would be in that dressing room talking to the players, giving them a bit of a history lesson about 1990-91 when Arsenal were ducked two points um, because of the brawl at Old Trafford, but still went on to win the league. And I would be talking about, you know, how we are fighting pretty much everybody. You know, Manchester City, Manchester United, all the teams around us, the referees, the PGMOL, the Premier League itself – all of it, you'd be getting them well and truly up for this and saying, look, look at these charges that they've uh, hit us with three times for what? You know, uh, they've taken points off us now. They don't want you to win it. So go out there and fucking win games, guys. And, and you know, that might be the sort of thing that could just snap us out of this little lull or funk that we've got ourselves into. Yes. Time will tell on that because we are... You know, we have dropped off a little bit over the last couple of games. Mm. Um, and we should talk about that as well, because as, as infuriating as the offside decision was, you know, there are certainly things Arsenal could have done better in this game. Mm. Um, and Brentford are a difficult opponent. You know, I said this during the match, but I, I, think, <laughs> I think they get a bit, a bit of a disservice at times. You know, people say, oh, they're awkward, they're difficult. But like, they're, they're very organised, they're very good at what they do. Um, oh, they played some lovely stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. And what, they they could well have scored a few goals. Uh, they, the they could. They could. And look, once they got themselves into a position where they had something from the game, you know, the, the, um, the sort of antics, the time-wasting, all that kind of stuff got really frustrating. But again, that's, you know, partly on us because of um, how desperate we were for, for three points. And I'm sure we'll chat about that. But let's you know, talk first half, because I think Arsenal were not quite there. There wasn't quite enough zip about the way that we passed the ball, wasn't quite enough in the way that we moved about the pitch. Like you say, Brentford had some really dangerous moments. Tony hit the, was it the post or the bar? I couldn't quite see. It was kind of the corner, wasn't it? I couldn't quite tell. Um, Even after five minutes, they had that one Rico Henry sliding in. Uh, which, you know, was a, a great chance, really, uh, after Tony went down the right-hand side. Um, 11 minutes in, mm. what did you make of that refereeing call uh, when Mbuemo went through and was a judge to have uh, fouled Gabriel? I mean, personally, I, I haven't seen it many times back, but I think you could potentially list that alongside the, the poor decisions on the day. I think that was a little bit harsh on Brentford. I, I maybe... Um... It's the sort of free kick you see given quite a lot, but it was soft. Yeah. I think it, it it would be fair to say it was it was Other a little way around, bit soft. I'd be very unhappy with it, I think. Yeah, but also, like, you know, I know he put the ball in the net, but at that point the whistle had gone and ran There was a long way to go, and, yeah. Yeah, you know, so it's not necessarily um, was going to be a goal. But look, they were very good. They were very good, and they had the best chances in that first half, that's for sure. Um, my, my feeling was that, because they pressed quite aggressively, and I actually thought that Arsenal's passing out from the back was pretty good. Like, I felt mm. like we 
took some risks and uh, did it pretty smartly and would sort of get away into midfield. And it was when we crossed the halfway line that we really struggled. And it was kind of the same against Everton where, you know, they had three central midfielders on the pitch um, and we just struggled to find the pockets of space that we have done until now this season. Yeah. I think that's fair. Um, and they doubled up. Thomas Frank was very clear about that post-match, speaking about, you know, we, we know Saka and Martinelli are, you know, the two, he said, I think two of the most informed, most dangerous wingers in the league. And so we knew we had to double up on them. And we mm. did. Um, and, you know, it was, a, it was a struggle. I mean, we didn't really create anything of note in that first half. Right at the end of the half, it was kind of the Martinelli uh, volley, left yeah. foot volley from the sort of 20 yards out. I mean, that's, you know, barely a half chance, not easy to, to take at all. Um, and yeah, they, they, I think they were on balance, uh, the better team in that half. We were better in the second half though. I think there was a chance from Saka quite early on. There was a, an Odegaard shot that was at the keeper. Yeah. Um, what What do you make of the fact... You know, we talked about the Everton performance and not necessarily being at our best that day. And yeah. I think pre-game, there was a sense that maybe we might see a couple of changes just to sort of, you know, shake things up a little bit. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case. There was, it was the, in inverted commas, first 11 again. And on one hand, I can kind of understand why, because we've got a big game coming up and he maybe wanted them to play themselves into a bit of form ahead of that one. But what do you make of the fact that when the goal came, it came via a substitute? Leandro Trossard was the guy who got on the end of the Bukayo Saka uh, cross after some good work, nice pass from Martin Odegaard. One of the few times he got any space in behind Saka uh, and he delivered a great ball. I think it was a good finish as well by, by Trossard. But maybe, you know, the kind of goal, the kind of moment that comes from having something just a little bit different in the side. Yeah, I think this is a really sort of fascinating topic because I think if Arsenal had beaten Everton, I think Arteta would have made changes against Brentford. Um maybe I maybe that's wrong, but mm. that's my gut instinct because obviously this is three games in less than a week this week because we go to Aston Villa on Saturday lunchtime off the back of Man City. You know, I think the the likelihood of being able to field the same 11 in all of those games mm. was pretty slim to me. Um, and I think had he got the points against Everton or even got a point, he might have thought, right, home game against Brentford, this is a chance to to make some changes. As it was, it kind of becomes complex because it's the penultimate game before City, which is essentially a cup final. You know, mm. it's not quite, but it has that kind of level of focus and importance. So if you change from your plan A, your preferred 11, mm. the game before City, um, and let's say you bring Tommy Asu in or Trossard in and they play well, I can see that that would put you in a, a quandary potentially for Wednesday night. But I felt he gave the, the, the Everton team a chance to kind of get back on the good foot ahead of the City match. Obviously, it didn't pay off and... Now I think it's so interesting, you know, does he stick or twist with this huge game on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, that's that's it. I mean, if, if we talked about this, I think, on the on the preview podcast um, 
on Friday. Like if you start Trossard against um, Brentford and he scores a couple of goals, then it becomes very difficult to to drop him, if that's the right way of putting it, for the game against Man City. Mm. And, and the thing about the game against Man City as well is that they're not going to come and play like Brentford played and they're not going to play like Everton played and they're not going to play like... Um, Newcastle Brentford. played. Or Newcastle, yeah. You exactly. know what I mean? It's in fact, famous last words, but it could suit uh Arsenal substantially more to mm. play an opponent like Man City. I mean, I found it interesting, Thomas Frank, who I think is a thoroughly impressive uh coach, by the way, but mm. he he spoke afterwards and said that he had watched some of Arsenal Newcastle in preparation for this game. Um and, you know, the the common thread between Newcastle, Everton and Brentford, I mean, there are several, but I think, you know, packing the central midfield area uh, is certainly one. And it's something that we have seemed to struggle with. Mm. Um, on Trossard, I think it's really interesting because I think individually right now, he is ahead of Martinelli in terms of what he offers. Sure. But... Ma- Arteta's uh, game model or his kind of tactical plan is so detailed and so ingrained in the players he's been working with for quite a long time that my sense is there's a bit of a hesitation to sort of throw someone into that who's relatively new to it. Mm. Um, and I and I empathise with that. But I think, you know, Martinelli is in a little bit of a dip and Trossard has been very impressive, I think, in the glimpses we've seen. So it's a really interesting one ahead of Wednesday. My gut says he'll stick with Martinelli, um, partly for that reason, you know, of the kind of knowledge of the system. Mm. But Trossard hasn't done much wrong yet in an Arsenal shirt. No, he hasn't. It's a good goal. and um... As tap-ins go... That's quite a hard tap-in. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. I think even calling it a tap-in is doing it a little bit of a disservice. Yeah. I know what you're. I know where you're coming from, but I think his movement was sharp, and you know he had to get there. Um, and the, I, you know, when I from where I was sitting, I thought, oh shit, he's put it wide for a second, just for a second, you know, because the angle seemed to be quite tight. So uh, I think this is a, a good moment because I mean there was such an explosion of noise when Trossard scored. Uh, mm. I think palpable relief what uh what did you you obviously you were here you were in london you yeah. had the game what did you make of the atmosphere at the match because there's been i've seen some discussion online about it and wondered what your perspective was as someone who's not you know been to a ton of games this season um i i could sense the nervousness for sure mm. i mean there were periods where it was amazing and really loud and you know i thought the like it struck me again that even when things aren't going particularly well for the team, there's like barely any moaning. Mm. Whereas previously in other years, you go to a game like that and there's people going crazy and, and the overall, um, it's not to say people weren't shouting things and, and all that, but collectively there seemed to be just more desire to give the team a a, a lift a bit of a mm. rise, you know, to try and get behind them. You know, when we weren't going well, there was some good chanting and everything else. But there were also periods where, you know, it was it was tense and it was quiet and there was nervousness and 
you know, I think everybody could see that Brentford were good on the day. They could see that we weren't that great or not as good as we have been. So it's understandable, I think, you know, and the more this season goes on, I think those, those tensions are going to play out, you know, pre-game, during the game uh, and everything else. But no, I mean, I think it was, it was, uh, it was still really, really good really good and you know there was a bit of pantomime villainry you know towards the end with all the Brentford players going down and the time wasting there's another thing by the way how there were only five minutes of time added on at the end of the second half is just I like staggering to me because David Raya was taking forever with every single kick whether it was a kick out of his hands or a goal kick you know that was ridiculous I don't know where the six-second rule has gone, by the way, where the goalkeeper is not allowed to hold on to the ball for longer than six seconds. Mm. I must go back and, and time some of them, actually, um, just for uh, just to torture myself, I guess. But, you know, there was one corner that it seemed to take them about a minute and a half to take the corner. There was the big, long um, VAR stoppage. There was all kinds of time-wasting and shenanigans. And, look, I'm not uh, necessarily criticizing Brentford for it. I think we've done it in the past. There are, you know, games where you just make it scrappy and you want to hang on for what you've got. So that's not really on Brentford. They're just doing what anyone would do. But again, the officials in the officiating, you know, for to only have five minutes was mad. And then, of course, most of that five minutes was more injuries, and more time wasting. Yeah, I know he played on for a bit, but, um, you know, I'd love to know how, how much uh, or how often the ball was in play in those uh, last five or seven minutes that it ended up being, which is, which is not a lot. Um, yeah, it's interesting. On the atmosphere, I was obviously in the press box, so it's not always the best uh, read or the best indicator, but I did sense a bit of a qualitative difference uh, in the atmosphere. I, I think that you've... You know, the the title race is kind of, uh, it's been a long time for everyone, players, coaches, you know, and fans too. And I felt that the pressure of the situation um, was kind of palpable yeah, a little it's, bit. It's sort of which the, is the rea- going to happen. Yeah, it is. It is. The reality of it is is now stark. It's, you know, everyone understands it. Whereas I think maybe the first half of the season was like, hey, this is good. Whoa, this is really good. Yeah, hey, this is fucking yeah. brilliant. And now it's like, okay, right, it's fucking serious now because what we've got to play for is is so big. So I think that will naturally just change the dynamic because every little thing that doesn't go your way, every result, every performance that isn't quite there just sort of chips away a little bit of the confidence or a little bit of the belief or whatever it might be. Um, so Definitely. I, you know, I get it. Yeah. It's just, it's just natural. It's sort of like, um, you know, the way we often talk about the game state when we talk about a game and, and how that influences, yeah. let's say the final 10, 15 minutes of a game simply because of what's happening. This is, this is true. And I think applicable to, um, to the crowd, you know, but I, you know, again, I was really impressed, really impressed with the noise of it when it did get going, it was so loud. And, and, you know, like I said, um, you know, in comparison to previous years, you know, I've been at games like this, I've been at performances like this where, you know, every time you walk through and you go take your seat, you're like full of optimism about what might happen. And then, you know, just it doesn't play out the way you're hoping it plays out. But I think collectively, I think the, the, the overall atmosphere was was still really good. And I think as well, maybe 
uh, if we talked about the sense of injustice fueling the team and the manager, I mean, why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it influence the fans on on Wednesday night? Sixty thousand people are in there, knowing that we've been robbed of two points, and you know it should be raucous anyway because of that. But every single every single decision <laughs> is going to be under the the gaze of sixty thousand people who think the referees have robbed us because they have. Exactly, and yeah, let's have let's have. Uh... Every seat full for that. If you've got a season ticket and you can't go, put it on the exchange. We need every every single space in the mm. stadium taken up with uh, screaming Arsenal fans. But you're you're so right about the the kind of game state element to it and the stakes feeling different. I mean, if I think back to what in Premier League terms is only kind of half a dozen games ago, but you know November when we were kind of trying to finish top at Christmas. Mm. I'll be honest, like, there was part of that that I sort of found funny. <laughs> I was kind of like, we're top at Christmas. Like, this is uh, <laughs> way in excess of expectations and something we can really enjoy and savour for a good few weeks. Isn't it all good fun? And then, you know, a few games on, because of the positive results, I think, that we had against the likes of Spurs, Newcastle, although it's a draw, and, and Manchester United. Mm the title discussion and, and and because it feels closer i guess it is so much more weighty and serious and real and yeah. with that comes you know all those all those stakes so it is amazing how it's changed and it's it's a, it's because of the largely good work we've done for sure as a team um, yeah, and it's, it is different now so look it's it's 1-1 and the goal stood um, I was watching Mikel Arteta. The first thing he did was sort of start waving at the crowd to get the crowd behind the team again. Yeah. He did make an interesting change. I'm not sure it necessarily worked as well as we would have liked, but but Fabio Vieira coming on for um, Granit Xhaka was interesting because we don't normally see him take Granit Xhaka off for a start. No. And it did put another creative player on the pitch. Um, you know, I know Jack has done really well this season, got some goals, got some assists, but you know, that is Vieira's, uh, thing. Um, I mean, again, he didn't really, he didn't really do it, but I sort of liked the intent of that substitution. Maybe, you know, another way he could have done it, um, was put Kieran Tierney on at left back and moves Inchenko into midfield. But I guess he's looking to give Vieira some minutes to try and, um, you know, not to spark him into life, but he's got to start using him. I think there's a, a discussion to be had, and we'll probably talk about it in part two with questions about, you know, squad rotation and using the depth of his squad a, a little bit more often. Um, mm. But what what did you make of that change? Yeah, I thought it was the right one, to be honest. Um, and, and I think there may, might have been a case for it slightly earlier, just because it seemed to me that Arsenal were coming up against a very... Uh, tightly packed Brentford defence. They're very, very comfortable defending their own box. Anything that you mm. sling in there, they'll get it out. Um, and I felt, particularly in the first half, actually, that you know we were getting Shaka on the ball in positions that really didn't hugely suit him. You know, when he had like mm. big numbers around him and very small spaces to work in. Uh, I actually thought he had a better second half 
like most of the Arsenal players. But I think that change is one that we might see more of. Um, and, you know, Arteta has used Vieira as a sub at Goodison Park uh, and on this occasion. So in situations where his team has needed something, he mm. has begun to turn to him a little more, uh, whether that's because of a lack of alternatives or because he thinks Vieira's kind of turned a corner and is re ready to make more regular contributions. Yeah. It's difficult to know at this point in time. I mean, unfortunately, Vieira, I, what I remember most from the game will be that free kick in stoppage time, which lofted straight into the keeper's <laughs> arms. But Yeah, I was waiting for the uh, Danny Welbeck versus Leicester moment there. Exactly. I right. was going, don't hit the first man. Don't hit the first man. I, I enjoyed this, actually. We had a tweet on this from Owen Bannon, who's at Owen underscore Bannon. He said, there was some talk beforehand that the Man City game on the horizon may be a distraction for the players. Do you think that was on Fabio Vieira's mind when he sent his late free kick into the middle of next week? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I think actually, to be honest, like um, a player who I, I would pick out as making a really positive contribution would be Bukayo Saka. I think yeah. he, you know, he was in a difficult situation, double marked. But in the second half, he had a couple of moments where he really made a difference. There was one where he popped up on the left-hand side and had a shot saved at the near post. And I think his assist for the goal... We probably didn't spend enough time on how how good that is, and the strength he showed to just sort of get that guy out of the way, and yeah. then deliver with his right foot. By the way, yeah, a perfect cross to the far mm. post. Uh, you know that that was good enough from Saka to warrant being a, a match winning contribution. Unfortunately, yeah. it wasn't to be, and uh, Brentford got their point. So, I mean, I saw. A bit of discussion around Eddie and Kedia as well. Yeah, I, to but be it, honest, uh, for me, it's less about Eddie and Kedia and more about Gabriel Jesus. Well, yeah, that's it. I was going to say that, like, um, you know, there, there. I think there is a discussion to be had about not having enough variety up front, not having a different kind of option, and and what have you. But it's sort of moot, isn't it? Because we don't have. We don't have anyone else, really. We've got one centre-forward. Mm. And even not being able to really change that centre-forward for 20 minutes and bring on fresh legs in that position, you know, who could give mm. the centre-backs a different challenge is unhelpful. But I think in a game like this, A, where your kind of your primary system-based game isn't quite clicking as you might like, and B, where, you know, it is so crowded and you need someone who can work in tight spaces or drop deeper or drop wide, create mm. combinations. Arsenal miss Gabriel Jesus, you know, and I think it would be staggering if we went the months and months of his absence without that becoming a factor at some point. And it is a credit to the team and the manager and to Eddie that we've kind of got this far. But sooner or later, when you lose a special player, it is going to hurt you. And I feel like we might be in that period right now. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, to be fair, he did try and get involved after the game. I saw him, <laughs> I saw him yeah. down at pitch level. There was a bit of um, you know, a little bit of aggro. Um, mm. Some staff members had to be separated and and things like that because uh, you know tensions were were obviously pretty high, and um, that's again normal and part and parcel of drop points feeling bad because of where we are and how significant those points could be. Um, but yeah, we, we really do miss him, but that's sort of obvious. 
and we can't really say any more because we don't have another option at center forward. I mean, do you think do you think we do have a way of mixing it up at all? You know, I've seen people moot Trossard as a false nine option, that kind of a thing. Or could you bring on Trossard and play Martinelli down the middle? Although that seems to be something we talk about quite a lot, but which never happens. Yes, it's fast becoming the kind of Kolo in midfield, isn't it, of uh, yeah. modern Arsenal. I think Trossard has done that job for uh, Brighton. Mm. Um, I don't feel it's the job he's been bought to do at Arsenal. Uh, but it's, it, it's a possibility. I mean, another player who we haven't mentioned... Uh, is Emil Smith Rowe, who I think would have been incredibly useful in a match like this. Yes, um, he would, and who again opens up all sorts of possibilities. You know that if he was to come on the left hand side, that frees Trossard up to come on elsewhere, potentially through the middle, or mm. you know, Smith Rowe could have been the, the change for Shaka. Um, we've seen him a couple of times do that kind of role, and it, it feels like that might be where they envision him playing going forward. Um, so I do think that the absence of a, of a couple of players is hurting us at this point in time. I don't really really see us uh, going with another centre forward as long as we have Eddie available. I think it is going to be a case of waiting for for Jesus to come back. Yeah. Although with Martinelli struggling a little bit uh, on the left wing, maybe it's not the worst shout, you know, to try moving him inside and see if that invigorates him at all. Because, you know, you could put Trossard out on the left and Martinelli through the middle. Um, I'm not sure Eddie's really done anything to be dropped, but mm. it's, it, is another, it is another way to go. Well, yeah, there's not long to wait before we go again, obviously. Um... No. Which Trossard was talking up as a, a positive, you know, as players tend to do. I think another home game... Whoever the opponent, they'll fancy mm. their chances. Um, but wow, what a big game that is. Mm. It's, um, yeah, huge, huge. And obviously they won yesterday and that that yeah. um, closes the gap. The gap, which of course should be two points more than it actually is. But uh yeah. We do have a game in hand still, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, That's that true. is worth remembering. Whatever happens Wednesday night, Arsenal have a game further to play, which is theoretically a home game against Everton. Um, speaking of uh, bouncing back and exacting revenge. Yeah. But yeah, it does feel like a pivotal moment. You know, will we, at the end of the season, look back on this as a wobble where our faith and conviction was tested and we came through it? Or will we look back on it as the time where we, you know, started to slightly run out of steam? Mm. Um, time will tell. It's, yeah, I mean, it's impossible to say, isn't it? Um, you obviously hope it's the former and not the latter. Um, but and I know can't be sure. Like, I, I've never seen this team in this position. So there's very little precedent to draw from in terms of determining, the, well, is, is this all going to go you know, back to us winning every week or, or not? It's mm. hard to say. I mean, 
we were performing at such an extraordinary rate that I suspect that kind of hundred point pace was probably unsustainable. Well, yeah, not quite a reversion to the mean, but something a little yeah. more close to that. I, but... I think if Arsenal were going to win the title or are going to win the title, you know, it was going to probably need to not be a hundred point season mm. um, to be champion. But yeah, I, I still think this is a long race with twists and turns to come. But the the Wednesday night game against City is yeah. hugely important. I mean, the absolute imperative for Arsenal is that they must not lose. That's a draw true. Is not, a draw is not a bad result in that game. No, because we do have that game in hand and we do um, have... Yeah. You know, a lead as it stands. So it, it keeps that City at arm's length. I mean, if Arsenal draw both games against Man City this season, uh, then they'll have, you know, mm. absolutely, they should absolutely take that, in my opinion. Uh, I think they can beat City on Wednesday. And I just think, yeah, they have to avoid defeat. Otherwise, the kind of pendulum swing towards City will feel pronounced. And, yeah. Uh, if not fatal, then, you know, significant. Yeah, there'd be like a sort of inevitability about that in a, in a way because of what City have done in previous yeah. seasons and, and all the rest. Um, I think once they get the driver's seat, once they get pole position, as it were, mm -hmm. I think they'll be difficult to shift. Uh, that's just my sense of it, you know. Yeah. Well, maybe, you know, if they do get into pole position, they might just, you know, forget their steering wheel. Sure. That could happen, couldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Forget to uh, <laughs> put their foot down on the... Forget to table. change gear. <laughs> Forget to check their rear, rear view mirror, all of that kind of stuff. You are recording, aren't you, Andrew? I Because I, oh! I do know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Ah, oh, fuck's sake. I knew there was something. Yeah. Fundamental. Um. Right. I mean, there are some questions and stuff. Is there anything else... You want to talk about in part one, anything that we... No, I just to say that, like, um, if there is a bit of gloom around, I, I think there are... There was quite a lot of uh, fun stuff this weekend. Um, Spurs getting absolutely battered, obviously. That was hilarious. Uh, by Leicester. That. It was really good value. Um, you know, New, did Newcastle... They dropped points. Dropped they drew points. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Chelsea dropped points, obviously. Great save so, you know, by Suchek, yeah. Yeah. So there was some fun around to be had. It wasn't all uh, doom and gloom. It wasn't all doom and gloom, for sure. Okay. Well, look, let's take a little break here, and we will come back with your questions and more in part two, right after this. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter, at GunnarBlog, and at Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Before we get into the questions, just want to mention that we've had quite a number of emails um, from Turkish Arsenal fans or fans of Turkish descent um, to ask us if possible, could we mention something about the uh, the terrible earthquake that took place there and in Syria last week. And it's obviously a, a terrible situation. Uh, the club via Save the Children have made a donation to the humanitarian efforts there. So what we'll do is uh, Arsblog will make a, a donation to Save the Children via the link that the club have put together. It's through the Arsenal Foundation, I think. So we'll find that or you will find that in the show notes, and if there's anything that you can spare to to try and help the people affected by that earthquake, I'm sure it would be hugely appreciated. So uh, thank you to all the people who got in touch, uh, who emailed, and uh, hopefully everybody um, in their orbit is safe and sound, um, and what you can do to help will be, um, will be really important. So there you go. Um, yeah. Right. Do you want to go first? Hey, yes, yes, yes. There's such a terrible situation there. Yeah, please do give whatever you can. Um, okay, let's go with this. Guna Bob on Twitter. All right. Hi, Bob. Bob says, why doesn't Arteta put on extra attackers in the final 10 mins like Wenger used to do? Seems like we don't create enough big chances at the end of these games we are drawing or losing. Um... Can, can I venture an answer? Of course. Well, he doesn't really he, have any. Well, he hasn't got any. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that seems to me to be one of the primary issues. Um, he can't throw another centre-forward on because he hasn't got one. Mm. Um, I mean, we did have the young winger on the bench. Koja Dubry. Koja yeah. Dubry. Who I seems mean, to have kind of made that last spot on the bench his own. Over the last few weeks. Yeah, um, because, I mean, we don't have Reese Nelson. We don't have Gabriel Jesus. We don't have Emile Smith-Rowe. I think, you know, as and when as and when they're back, you know, he'll he'll drop down again. But I do wonder sometimes, like, could you just have a little bit of a Hail Mary? I just don't quite know how exactly you make that change, you know? Where do you put him and for who in the final stages of a game? Because, you know... Brentford were good and could still threaten, and they had a really, they had a really late corner, didn't they? If I remember correctly, yeah. you want to see Arteta's face when that corner was being taken. Holy moly! You see him sort of muttering under his breath, like "Don't, don't, 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 don't." Well, don't I, well, I, I say don't lose Wednesday. <laughs> I think losing here would have been really damaging yeah. as well, and perhaps that was in his mind. Um, I, I suspect so. Um, I think if if, if the game is playing out in such a way where you are already on top, you know, mm -hmm. and and you're looking to pile on the pressure, then maybe you can take a Hail Mary with with a young guy like that. But, um, you know, sacrifice a fullback 
or two even for uh, another attacker. But I think the primary reason right now anyway is that he just doesn't have those options. Yeah, I mean, something we saw in pre-season, and I think we've seen it a couple of times this season, is him switching it up and using Saka and Martinelli as kind of wing-backs mm. and having two strikers on the pitch in Jesus and in Ketia. Um He has done that from time to time, but obviously that was kind of dependent on him having two strikers to call upon. I think, as well, we have to bear in mind, this is a coach who is very wedded to structure uh, in a way that Arsene Wenger was slightly more relaxed about. Mm-hmm. You know, Arteta's entire kind of tactical ethos is based around positioning and structure. Um, whereas Wenger was more of a kind of uh, enabler of improvisation. And I, I think it, I think it must be very hard for him to divorce himself from those principles and in fairness to him, like I, I can recall one or two occasions where Arsenal have gone a bit Hail Mary with their changes and have slightly come apart at the seams because, you know, if you take out all the sort of kind of key pieces or you change the build-up play, then you kind of stop being mm. what you are. So, but I think the primary thing is just not having the players at his disposal to really, to really chuck at it. Um, yeah. I don't think he's ever going to be Wenger. I don't think he's ever going to be, let's have four strikers on the pitch. I think that is a fundamental kind of difference between the two managers. But um, I think there's more he could do if he had the options available. Right. Here's one with loads of questions about what we do to break down teams that play with a a deep block. So Colin R on the Discord says, with the blueprint of a compact deep block, Everton, Newcastle, Brentford causing Arsenal issues and struggling to break down these sides with our current system, how do they crack this issue? Is it a structural change needed in these matches or a a personnel change? And um, Shan says, with Arsenal struggling to break down low block teams, um, this being attributed to likely doubling up on defenders on our wingers and a lack of overlapping support from our fullbacks at times, do you think it's time to switch to traditional fullbacks for games against low block teams? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I, I, on the one hand, I think, well, you know, we've seen it against Everton and to an extent against Brentford. Um is this going to be a bit of a blueprint for teams playing Arsenal? You know, is it the nature of being top of the league and everyone knowing how good you are uh, and how taking you very seriously? I mean, I saw Thomas Frank in the build-up say, in order to get a result, Brentford will have to play at the highest level they've played in the Premier League since they were promoted. And afterwards he was like, I think we got very close to that. Um, You know, people come to the Emirates Stadium very respectful. And so... It may be something Arsenal encounter quite frequently between now and the end of the season. On the other hand, I do think, well, you know, Dyche and Brentford are quite specific tactical problems. And I actually think, rightly or wrongly, most teams in the Premier League do kind of have aspirations above that at this point in time. I think like most teams come and try and play their football. So I'm not sure how often Arsenal are going to find themselves in this position. Um, early goals early goals I mean goals change games is the cliche early goals were a feature of the first half of the season 
Yeah. So even if you are going to face a team who nominally are going to play deep to try and frustrate you, when they're a goal behind, naturally they have to they have to come out a bit. They have to be a bit more expansive. Change it. Yeah, I think that first twenty minutes is right. Arsenal mm. had a decent first five minutes, I think, against Brentford, and then it kind of all swung in the other direction. But you've got to sustain that early pressure. I also think <laughs> the key when you're playing against a, a deep block defence is to capitalise on the moments where they have come forward. So there were a few instances in this game where Brentford did press very high. And like I say, Arsenal's uh, movement of the ball and escaping mm. the press was pretty good. But I didn't feel they always capitalised on the situations they created. I, I can think of one where Eddie Nketiah was running with the ball in the first half and had Gabriel Martinelli kind of just outside him and I think didn't feed him yeah. when he was running into space and the, the move just kind of died a death. You have to be clinical in those moments when there is space available to you, I think. Yes, um, that's a good point. But but yes, in, I mean, obviously the doubling up on the flanks, I don't think it's coincidence that, that Saka's assist comes at a time when Ben White has made an overlapping run that's kind of dragged someone a little bit out of position and tired them out a bit. Um, is overlapping fullbacks the way to go? I mean, I'm not sure Tommy Asu's substantially... I'm not sure he's that much more overlapping than White anyway within the system. I think they're quite analogous to be honest yeah. I think they're not the, exactly the same player but the same kind of player because we talked a lot about Tommy Asu's ability to play inside you know which allowed then Kieran Tierney the other side to, to sort of overlap whereas Tierney does give you something a bit more of that you know he can overlap he um, does he does I, it is a different quality to Zinchenko I think the idea of the current system is obviously that, you know, Martinelli holds that wide position. And if he rolls in field, you know, Shaka or, or, or Vieira or whoever it is in that role is kind of supposed to provide that, that wider option, but mm. it's not quite proving as successful as it did in the first half of the season. I mean, we had this question from Adam Ben Abbas on Twitter and Adam said, do you think that we are seeing the limits of Shaka as an advanced number eight against these low blocks? Yes. Mm. Yeah, I do, actually. Um, which isn't to be critical of him. But I think maybe when you are facing a team like this, and when they are playing in that specific way, you might need somebody with a little more craft, a little more uh, creativity, maybe a bit more nimble, just a little bit quicker between the lines. So, you know, I think Jack has been really good for us this season. I think he's played a huge role in us being where we are. But... In the context of these kinds of uh, opposition, I don't think that's unreasonable at all. What about no, you? I, I agree. I think Shaq has been brilliant. And uh, in most games, I'm picking Granite Shaka. For example, against Manchester City, I really want Shaka on the pitch in that position. Um, but I think against this type of opponent, and that's why I said I might have brought Vieira on sooner and if Emil Smith-Rowe was available I certainly would have mm. considered using him there I think uh, it suits him less and yeah like I said he was getting on the ball in areas where I was like this does not really benefit him and actually you know when when Arsenal have all the possession on the halfway line and it's kind of Zinchenko, Gabriel, White, Partey knocking it around 
Shaka almost becomes kind of uh, a bit absent in that because you're probably not giving him the ball with his back to goal, 30 yards out, you know, mm. with two markers on him because it's not where he wants to receive it. Whereas a more technical player, you know, might take it on the turn there and, and give you an option. Yeah. What um, did you make of Zinchenko at the, the weekend? Uh, I thought he was okay. I didn't think it was his best game. I thought that his... I thought his delivery from wide areas probably wasn't as good as you would expect. Um, yeah, I, th I thought he was okay without being at his usual level. Mm. What did you think? I just thought he was took a few too many touches. Right. Like I wanted him to move it quicker. And we talked about this a little bit in the Everton game, didn't we, when we were discussing Martinelli being available on the left-hand side. Not that yeah. he was like free, but there was space for him, but the ball never got there. The ball didn't get there quickly enough. And often the ball didn't get there at all, even when it was Zinchenko who's got the ability to play those passes. So, yeah, I, I do wonder. I do. But I, look, I think Arteta's got huge faith in him. And given the fact that we're playing Man City on, on uh, Wednesday, I don't see him making any kind of change. But I was just, yeah, just curious about his... Yeah, um, I think it's a valid question. I mean... Would you change it for Wednesday? Seems an obvious question, but... No. No, because I do think the way City play, not that it suits us, because, you know, it's kind of weird to say you're better playing a brilliant team because you'd much rather play a crap team who are really badly organised. Unfortunately, there aren't too many of those in the Premier League now that Frank Lampard is gone. So, mm. um, you know, teams are organised. But the fact that City will look to get on the ball, will look to, um, you know, come forward and attack, I think in some ways, like you said, does, uh, does suit us better in the sense that when we get the ball, we're going to be able to move people around uh, and get the ball to them in areas where perhaps they can, they can, you know, they can run into space, if that makes sense. There was a lot of players in the last couple of weeks receiving the ball with basically nowhere to go but backwards. Yeah. There's not much in front of them because, you know, the teams are sitting so deep. So it might well suit us. So let me ask you this one. Um, what a couple of questions like this. Chicken marmalade flakes on the uh, Discord said, a long one, I'm afraid. According to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, coming into the weekend, Arteta's made the least changes, 14, from game to game of any manager, and our subs play the smallest proportion of games. Are we mm -hmm. seeing the impact of that now? Which has caused the biggest problem, an over-reliance on key players, even though they might be out of form, fatigue buildup among those key players, or a lack of match practice for the fringe players or subs? And is it all of the above? And we had a similar one from David Baratunk, who said, how worrying is it that Arteta never rotates? What message does it send to players like Tommy Asu, who was finding a bit of form, but then dropped right away for Ben White? Is he not good enough? Uh, if he isn't, then how can we trust him, etc., etc.? Um, so what, what do you make of that? The, the sort of trade-off between consistency of selection and the ability to change things when it's not quite working the way you would like, it seems to be right. We will just let these guys play themselves back into a bit of form rather than, okay, look, it's not going that great for you the last couple of weeks. You have a sit down and this guy's going to come in. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we talked about this in part one a bit. I think, 
I think a couple, two weeks ago, we probably would have all said the consistency of selection has been one of the defining, you know, underpinning reasons for our success this season. Yeah. Um, I certainly would have said that. I, I think that's been true. Uh, I accept that we've not looked quite as good uh, in the last two league games. And then I think you sort of enter a situation where it's like, well, who does Arteta really trust that's not in the starting eleven? And I guess, you know, Tommy Asu would be one. Smith Rowe, if he was fit. Um, Jesus, if he was Jesus, fit. Jesus, if he was fit. Like, I'm not sure Tierney, maybe. But, like, I'm not sure there are... T- Trossard, maybe. But I'm not sure there are a ton of options that make it easy for him to change. I think mm. it's as simple as he he played the City team against Brentford... Uh, to give them, you know, as you say, an opportunity to sort of get back on the horse. Because they didn't, really, that's where it becomes really tricky. I think he will stick with his best eleven. You know, it's like that old question of, like, if it's the Champions League final tomorrow, Mm. what does he pick? Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is not quite that, but it's, it's up there. I do think it is fascinating, though, because... At the end of the first half, we were talking about, like, what will the team do? You know, is this a blip? Will we just sort of yeah. respond and kick on? And you said, we don't really have any precedent for this team. And I get that. But we sort of do in the sense that we saw what a very small group was able to do last season. And it didn't quite have enough to get over the line. Mm-hmm. Because maybe there was... I don't know if you can say too much reliance on certain players, but we didn't have the options that we needed when towards the end of the season, players picked up a a bit of injury. Uh, You're playing players. You know, I think there were some guys in the last few games of the season were pretty much on their last legs, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe there's precedent there and that should be something we're, we're a bit more attuned to that Mikel Arteta needs to be a bit more attuned to because... Yeah, I think there are there is a need when it's not quite working. It's not punishment to drop somebody if they're not in good form. It's just football. That's what happens at every level of football, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I and I would have been completely comfortable with say Trossard or, or Tommy Asu starting against Brentford. Yeah. But my feeling my gut feeling is that there won't be changes for Man City and there will be a number of changes for Aston Villa, almost irrespective of the City result. Mm. Uh, I just can't see that he could play the same 11 across these three games inside seven days. Um, uh, Hold my beer, says Mikel Arteta. But (laughs) yeah, I'm convinced there will be changes and I'm sure it seems like it's almost been planned that they will be against Villa. And it wouldn't surprise me if we saw, you know, Jorginho, Trossard. Tommy uh, Asu. Tommy Asu, Tierney at Villa Park. Mm. Um, I, 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 I probably, I if it was in my hands, I probably would have made a change or maybe two changes for Brentford with the City game in mind and just sort of to kind of, find out what I had as well yeah. um, in terms of the depth of my squad. But I do understand the reasons that Arteta felt 
he he shouldn't. Um, yeah, like if we win, it works out and everyone is like, okay, yeah, fair play. That worked, but it didn't work and it only sort of adds to a little bit of the, the already um, palpable tension and nerves ahead of, of Wednesday because now it's like, well, do you stick again or do you twist a little bit? What, what do you do? Like, mm, It makes it awkward. Yeah. I mean, so another thing that I think is worth saying is Premier League season is very long and I doubt it's ever the case that what you're doing on game one of the season is what you're doing in game 38. I think it requires a measure of evolution because you're competing in a league where you are constantly being analysed. And I think there is kind of a tipping point where clubs are wise to you and you are Mm. sort of required to evolve. It's incumbent on you to do something different because everyone not has got you worked out or sussed you out, but they know where you're most dangerous. So this is why Saka and Martinelli are doubled up on all the time now, all the time. So it's, so, you know, as much as you might have your ideas and your principles and your way of playing, um, I think the length of the season and the quality of the competition requires you to make adjustments as you go on. Mm. And I'm sure those are happening and have happened, but this feels like a point where, you know, we just need to slightly recalibrate. Mm. But I do think City is so different. Like playing against a Brentford or playing against an Everton and playing against a Man City are so, so different. I think the closest sort of analogue, closest not analog analogy we have would be like the man united game for example mm. um and that was much more suited to us so i'm sort of weirdly optimistic about wednesday um in terms of performance level or result uh you can never guarantee result but i think we'll perform i mean it's fascinating let's chat to I think it was Sam Dean at the weekend. And he said to me, who's going to have more of the ball in that match? Mm. I think that's such an interesting <laughs> question. You know, who's uh, Arsenal have been doing Man City for uh, half a Premier League season. Who's going to do the Man City thing on Wednesday night? Mm. Um, and could it help Arsenal if they don't have all the possession and they're hitting City on the break with, you know, the speed and power that we have on, on the wings? don't think that's impossible. It's really, that's going to be, I mean, I think if you look back at every Arsenal Man City game over the last, I don't know, six years, I'd venture Man City probably dominated possession in all of them. Probably. And certainly last season when they were um, playing with 10 men. Yeah. I have to go back and check that and see what the, the statistics say. But, but, you know, I, I, is this the moment that that changes? I, yeah. I just think it's a fascinating tactical battle. Um, and obviously mm. it's Pep and Arteta, so there is a chance that one or both of them will do something mad. I mean, as much as we say <laughs> Arteta might pick the same 11, what there is precedent for is in mixing it up against Man City. Yeah. Let me ask you this one then, because we've got yeah. a question from Gunnar Gwigs. Uh, on the Discord, he said, Morning, chaps. There might be a chance that Haaland has picked up an injury resulting in him being out on Wednesday. 
my question is, with all this talk of Haaland arguably making City, in inverted commas, worse, would you rather we had this apparent worse City with him or prefer him to miss the game, but then perhaps revert a bit more to the City of old, I think is basically the question. Mm. Well, forgive me for being a little dubious about Haaland's injury. They were 3-0 up at half-time when he was withdrawn. So, you know, I think this would be heavily into the kind of precautionary uh, end of the spectrum. Yeah, I absolutely expect him to play. Yeah, me too. Um, and actually, like in terms of like who has possession, you know, the one thing you don't want against Haaland is space for him to run into. That's mm. where he's really dangerous. Um well, he's dangerous in lots of places, but he's particularly dangerous there. Uh, as for the whole kind of does he make City worse thing, um, I think what we are witnessing is a process of integration and adaptation where Man City and Haaland are learning about each other. And what that has done is create a window of opportunity for Arsenal, I think. And I imagine that window is quite um, briefly ajar. Like, I expect next season, because Haaland is an outstanding player and Man City are an outstanding team, I expect by the time next season rolls around, they will have figured this out. Mm. And that will be absolutely horrible for everyone else in the Premier League. But while they are still figuring out we have this chance to capitalise. And that's, you know, another reason I think that this season feels quite so big and so important and like such a fantastic chance. Because I, mm. I I have to be honest, I think a, a player of that quality with, and a coach of that quality in the long term, I expect they'll figure it out. I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, like, I don't think they're... City don't play to the strengths of Haaland. That's not the way they play football, right? No. But I think they've got the ability to combine what they do with a bit more of what he does. You know, receiving yeah. the ball in space, getting it to him early. I mean, look, Manchester City, um, if we're complaining about teams playing in a low block against us, pretty much everybody plays in a low block against Manchester City because yeah. they make you play in a low block because of where they um, where they put you on the pitch. You know, they dominate possession. They force you backwards. Um, so they're well used to um, to playing against teams that, that sit deep, whether by choice or otherwise, you know. Um, but yeah, I think he'll play. I think he'll play on Wednesday. There's no two ways about it. Um, we need Saliba to look uh, more like the Saliba we saw at the Etihad in the FA Cup. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, he came on and kept Haaland pretty quiet in that um, in that second half. Uh, whereas Rob Holding obviously had a, a bit of a problem with him in the first half. And, you know, let's hope Saliba, um, the game against uh, Ivan Tony is one that he learns very quickly from because I'm sure Erling Haaland was looking at that as well. Um, whether City will play in the same way as Brentford, because they were quite direct, weren't they? You know, every goal kick was coming out. Um, it was being launched towards Tony in the Saliba zone, if you like. Um, and that was very, very obvious and very deliberate. Whether City will do exactly that, I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, 
I imagine so. 31 goal. So. 31 goal striker making you worse is I mean I get the the overall thing but um I would be quite happy if he was out. <laughs> I'll say that. Oh, 100%. <laughs> 100%. Um, um go on your turn. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, well this is a a, a slightly more uh somber note but uh sean d guna said just wondering if you saw the post-match statement from brentford read the racist abuse tony received on social media mm. absolutely disgusting that so-called fans would do such a thing should our club also investigate i think arsenal have said they are cooperating and working with brentford on that but yeah very sad wasn't it yeah it's awful it's i mean there's no excuse for that like i was talking about at the end um you know, when, when he was coming off, like the, the sort of pantomime villainry, but that's all it is. You know, it's pantomime. It's just sport. There's absolutely no uh, excuse or condoning any kind of uh, racist behavior or, you know, going out of your way to what, troll his Instagram or whatever it was. Is that yeah, how it happened, I guess? I guess so. You know, what the fuck? Um, you know, no, people like that don't represent um, Arsenal or the values of Arsenal fans. And if the club can help Brentford in any way uh, with the investigation, then they should absolutely do that. Um, you know, there's no, yeah, there's no, I don't know, what can you say other than it's just so fundamentally wrong and abhorrent and nobody should be subjected to that. Whether they've done a few things on the football pitch that might have annoyed you, there's no excuse for it whatsoever. Um, and I hope they yeah. do. Um throw the book at whoever it is if they can find out who they are you know in as much as that happens on the internet which you know it doesn't really um which is another discussion unfortunately yeah 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 um, um i did on, I have you. a question here or two because um you know those those final minutes when you know when brentford were very obviously slowing the game down etc etc and we had a couple of questions uh, like this for example um, Alexander Cussell, who's at Alex Cussell, said, what are your thoughts on players using head injuries to waste time? Ben Mee was down for a considerable amount of time and there wasn't even contact with his head. It seems to be happening more often than ever as a time-wasting tactic. And JDH, who's at JDH underscore 14, uh, morning, gents, what can be done about the growing trend of players using apparent head injuries to slow attacks? Of course, player safety is paramount, but against us and in other games, players go down cynically holding their head knowing that the ref will stop the attack. And I think mm -hmm. this is true. I think there is a growing trend of of this happening, but I don't quite know what you can do about it. No. I think the only thing you can do is um, add on the appropriate and correct mm. amount of time afterwards in stoppage time. But I don't think, on the one hand, you can say we need to take head injuries more seriously and, you know, these players need immediate treatment. And on the other, kind of call into question whether or not it's legitimate, unfortunately. Like, yeah. I, I don't see a solution there. Um, very tricky, isn't it? It is. It is, because you can completely understand the protocol that if a player has got a, a head injury, then you stop the game because it could potentially be quite serious i mean is there is there any i mean i'm not a doctor so for god's sake no one take my advice but is there any mileage in the possibility of like saying well if a player goes down with a head injury there's like a 20 second window within which uh you have to blow up so mm. if, if a team scores within that it counts but uh 
I don't if know. Not, I don't know, man. I Even don't that know. feels risky, doesn't it? Like, has he got a bump? How big is the bump? Yeah. You know, yeah. if if the bump is more than, you know, uh, 3.2 centimetres, then immediately stop the game. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but then you're you know, you're a fireman. What would you know about head injuries? That so. is very true. Um, but no, and I think I'm, you're. I'm, I think I'm you're just, right. I think you're yeah. right about the 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 added on time. Um, I think the Premier League needs to do better in that regard. Uh, I saw some people talking about you know a ball in play clock being introduced, um, which would be interesting. But again, you know, changes that happen at this level of football mean that the top level game gets further and further away from the grassroots game, you know? Um, how do you implement those uh, sort of time uh, measures, you know, at Sunday league level and things like that? And we already have a bit of a distance with technology and VAR and, and those kinds of things. Um, you know, someone's dad doing the line, though, you know, based on the officiating, uh, they might be might be better at it than some of the guys. Um can I By ask the way, you, yeah, can, I, I just wanted to jump in because, as you know, uh, Dale Johnson, uh, ESPN's resident VAR expert, has published his <laughs> kind of weekend. He should have a theme tune, shouldn't he? There's <laughs> a bar man waiting in the stand. <laughs> um, What's he it said? Inclu- includes the following. Mason, who failed to, to disallow the Brentford goal, uh, was the Premier League's first full-time VAR and is into his second season, but has made six confirmed mistakes this Jesus campaign. Christ. He was responsible for two errors uh, one weekend in September. On the goal in question, uh, Mason correctly judged that Pinnock had interfered with his opponent, depriving him of the chance to close down mm. uh, Tony. This was enough for the offside defence, but Mason has to be sure he was offside. There was no camera angle which clearly showed Gabrielle's right-hand side, the part of his body closest to the goal, which is needed for an offside decision. So actually, the the argument appears to be that Pinnock was fouling Gabrielle, but they couldn't prove he was offside. But they showed that on Match of the Day. Listen. Didn't they? They showed... How can, like, the VAR people not have the same cameras as match of the day i don't know and then on the final norgard offside it says mason had taken two minutes and 20 seconds to judge the first offside considering the possible foul and then the offside offense trying to find a usable camera angle once he's cleared that aspect the rest of the attacking phase is checked and it seems it was rushed the goal was awarded after a further 14 seconds and one check of the phase um yeah, and then he goes on to say, PJ Miles admitted this an error. You can possibly excuse missing a marginal offside further back in an attacking move, but to miss it against the player who created the goal is a huge error, which I think is the major issue, right? Like, mm. they spend so long on one offside. What about the guy who actually gets the assist and sticks it across? I know we've been over this. It was very, very offside. Uh, well, very, and- you know... Mildly, but still offside. The solution proposed is that semi-automated offside technology as used in the Champions League would eliminate problems such as being unable to map Pinnock or missing Norgard as all 22 players are mapped and the VAR is given an instant notification of an offside player. The human error aspect is removed. I mean, that, unfortunately, I think that, you know, if you're going to have technology, uh, then it has to be as accurate as possible. 
I think the reason, personally, I think that the reason this feels so egregious and so uh, infuriating is that uh, VAR kind of, it sort of exists upon the premise, the promise of objectivity and accuracy. But the reality is, of course, it's still human Mm. and thus errors are made. But I think offside is something where you should be able to achieve a greater sense of objectivity. Um, so I think that the, the automated tech has to be the way to go for the Premier League. Mm. Yeah, I mean, remove the incompetence of idiots like Lee Mason, who can't be trusted with their own eyes. You know, yes. and this isn't, like he said, is this? he's made six mistakes in... His, like a season Half and a, a half. Season. Yeah, yeah. You know the 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 one I think in September was was incredible. It's what? six confirmed mistakes this season. <sighs> Fucking hell. Yeah. You know, sorry, that guy just isn't good at his good enough at his job. We had a question actually from uh, Shaheen Madi, I think it is. Um, he's at Shaheen Madi 91. He said, hi uh, there, gentlemen. The question on VAR and officials may be saturated for today, but my question is uh, what, what you believe should be the appropriate sanction system for referees to go through and whether a separate VAR accreditation should exist to operate in the role. So if, I think, you know, sort of fleshing this out a little bit, a hugely experienced referee like Lee Mason you know, whatever you might think of him, he's got a long career as a referee. Like, do you need to be a referee to be the VAR guy? Once you understand the rules, should you have to have been a referee to be uh, a VAR official? I think that's quite an interesting one. Because No, yeah, perhaps not. Perhaps not. I think it could be a completely different pathway, couldn't it? Yeah. Not something that we just put out old referees to pasture doing. Yeah, and um, like, uh, sorry... I know uh, I'm not generalizing in any way, but, you know, there is a, an element of technology and some people, as they get older, find technology difficult to deal with. You know, I'm not saying that's exactly what it is here, and I'm not saying that anyone who isn't, you know, uh, or is old can't use technology. Of course, that's nonsense, but I do wonder if that might be part of it. Well, also, this is a sport where it produces a huge number of kind of highly able uh, video analysts. Uh, you know, yes. something that a lot of people are doing on an amateur level, but increasingly it's a common role in the game. People who spend their lives watching footage of football matches and analysing it from every possible perspective or from a data perspective. And uh, those people are there to be potentially called upon for the ranks of the VAR. So... Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's wise. I mean, I, I, there there is all there is always human error in this league uh, with the way it's set up right now, and sometimes it goes for you, and sometimes it goes against you. I mean, mm. you know, I can think of a goal that had a big impact in the title race that should absolutely never have stood, and I, it's my uh, Bruno Fernandez rather against uh, Manchester mm. City, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is obviously asked that helped Arsenal that week. But mm. uh, I do think the fundamental here is that if your pursuit, like, I, like, you know, my, my personal opinion is that I can, I can, if the premise is human, then I can accept human error. But if the premise is uh, objective fact, 
then you have to do all you can to eliminate the human aspect. Mm. What about what about sanctions and things like that? That one of the one of the continued complaints about the PGMOL is that there appears to be little accountability, and I I accept that it's sort of difficult, right? But what happens is you know a high profile referee makes a mistake in a big game at Premier League level, and then they're sort of you know left on the sideline maybe for a couple of weeks if the if the mistake is egregious enough mm. you know they might get sort of left out for a couple of weeks but then sort of slowly they're the fourth official and then they're back in and they play a game or maybe you know um which i always found really uh is patronizing the right word is like okay you've made a mistake you're down to referee in league one tomorrow it's like you know you fucked up so we're gonna just foist you on another couple of unsuspecting teams um feels more like punishment for the teams than for the referee but the lack of accountability the lack of transparency as well in decision making i think is is something that howard webb in his new role should address and should try and make uh what's the word, try and make a bit of progress with that kind of stuff. So is there anything you can think of that, I don't know. I mean, the, I, I the, these are people's jobs, but like if you're bad at your job, you get fired, regardless of whether you're a referee or a VAR guy or a taxi driver or a fireman. You're still mm. getting fired if you don't put out the fire. The, the, the trouble, I guess, for the referees is – if they really hang someone out to dry, how do they ever mm. rehabilitate them? Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. They have to kind of <laughs> punish them, but in a subtle enough way that the opinion of that official doesn't sort of too much infiltrate the public consciousness, because I think then mm. it becomes completely unworkable and unsustainable. So you'd like to think there are things that they do, like taking them off, high-profile matches. For example, we spoke about the video assistant referee who might be in line mm -hmm. to work with uh, Arsenal City on Wednesday. Um, but a bit like Mikel Arteta making substitutes, I guess at the moment Howard Webb is working with a pool of people that he's got and who knows what exists outside of that. So there is an issue here. There mm. is definitely an issue around quality and availability of high-standard referees. Um but the Premier League is such a rich and powerful organisation. It's something they have to get handle on. Well, I mean, it, it does begin yeah, to affect them. It does feel like they have the, like you say, the the resources to really incentivize a career path that would be attractive to people. Because I can completely get that, like, oh, who wants to be a fucking referee? Because at every level of the game, you get shouted at, and you know, people on the sidelines and players and all that kind of thing. I think there is a cultural difference the way referees in football are treated as opposed to many other sports where any kind of dissent or any disrespect of the referee's role is severely punished and sometimes on the pitch you know um so i think that's something that's so ingrained in the culture of football that it's going to be kind of hard to change but at the same time if the difference between a title is two points, 
come May, there is going to be <laughs> there's going to be a an outcry of massive proportions, isn't there? So you also have the expectation that people in these highly paid jobs and very well trained, up trained as well, are capable of doing what they're supposed to do. But I think you're right to say that the Premier League has to do something about the the overall standards and whether that's investing more in making a career pathway for referees, like a good career, then maybe that's something they have to consider because well, it might widen your pool of of options. You know, when things do go wrong, it's not as damaging because, you know, you've got a greater pool to choose from or there's a better quality, a higher level overall. And, and we, we haven't even talked about the geographical element to it, the inclusivity element to it. Um, you know, there is a lot to do. There's a lot to do at refereeing level. Well, the standard of officiating appears to me at least to be substantially better in, say, the Champions League or even the major FIFA competitions like the Euros or the World Cup mm. for competitions. And in the 90s, when the Premier League was growing and expanding, there was a massive gulf, I think, in the sort of calibre of English players that were being produced to foreign players that were being produced. And the way that clubs and the league responded to that was by mm. beginning uh, doing a lot of work on kind of the academy side to kind of eventually be able to match up to the likes of Spain and Germany. But in the short term, recruiting foreign players who came in and elevated standard of the league. And so I would suggest a similar two-pronged approach to uh, Premier League officiating, whereby you create a career path, not quite an academy system, but, you know, an education system for referees that mm. is rewarding, uh, well-paid, open to people from every background to apply for. And in the short term, you go and get, the 10 best referees, you know, that you can from world football as you have done with the players and you pay them appropriately mm. and elevate the products uh, at the same time. That, to me, it feels like a no-brainer. And, you know, this mm. is supposed to be, you know, people say the Premier League is the Super League. Well, then go and get refs suitable for the Super League. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, where are we? I think we have to do a couple of quick ones to finish. Um, first one, very simple, from Darren Kemmel, who's at Delboy underscore eight. He said, good morning, gents. Not a football-related question, but I need to know, is James the voice of the latest Costa radio ads? Costa Coffee. I keep hearing a voice that sounds very much like his. I need to know, is it him or a James impersonator? <laughs> uh, no, it's me. It's me. I'm in bed with Costa Coffee. Right. Look forward to all that Costa Coffee PR uh, on the Athletic. Right. I see. So you're you're getting into the uh, muscling into the old voiceover world, are you? The voiceover. Oh, game. I see. Well, how would you like it if I turned up tomorrow in a in a show called Horrendous Histories? How about that? You wouldn't like that, would you? There's surely, Andrew. There's room for us all to have a piece of the pie or a sip of the coffee. There's so many radio a ads sip out of there. the delicious Costa Coffee. Um, <laughs> I actually haven't heard it, so I, I, I'm on quite a few, but I never hear them. I don't know what radio stations they're on. It's um, strange, yeah, because you often do them. I don't really listen to the radio, so you go in and do these ads, and then someone will go, did I hear you do an ad for 
blah blah blah. I was going, yeah, I think so, but yeah, yeah. I know. Um, well, keep an ear ear out, guys. You might hear me promising you some delicious Costa coffee. There you go. There you go. I'm sure you've got some vouchers or something. I haven't actually. No, I know. You never get anything like that. You never get anything. The only time I got something free was when I, I was acting in a crunch, Kellogg's Crunchy Nut ad. And it was for Kellogg's Crunchy Nut Clusters, which are actually delicious. Um, the problem was that on the day I had to eat like a lot of Kellogg's Crunchy Nut. Mm. And they give you like a, a thing called a spit bucket. I mean, it doesn't take a great leap of imagination to work out what that is. Uh, but it's so you don't have to swallow all the crunchy nut that you're eating. Mm. But the experience of sort of masticating crunchy nut and uh, throwing it, you know, spitting it back up out all day meant that when they, at the end of the day, gave me a few boxes of crunchy nut, I was like, to be honest, guys. Yeah, no, you can keep these. You can don't keep me. these. Yeah, 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 that's fine. I want them now, though. It's been years. So I, 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 if crunchy nut are listening, feel free to... Have some crunchy nut clusters, please. They Mr. are delicious Kellogg. crunchy nut clusters. I've never had the crunchy nut clusters. They're good. And right. my contract with them has long since expired. I'm not obligated to say this. This is They're, genuine, real This is my actual opinion. opinion, guys. Okay. I don't have strong views on anything, but I think <laughs> Kellogg's crunchy nut clusters are nice. All right, uh, final one from Arse Thoughts, who's at underscore Arse Thoughts. He said, now that the stadium art has mostly gone up, it's... Interesting to see how they fare at a bigger scale. For example, I wasn't a I wasn't the biggest fan of the 1886 artwork when I first saw it, but I think it's bold and brilliant on the stadium. Which ones do you think pop in real life? And uh, yeah, I mean, I I had a walk around the stadium on Saturday to check out all the uh, the new artwork, yeah. and I have to say, they're fucking brilliant. I yeah, think they look great. so good. They look so good and. It really sort of freshens up the outside of the stadium, but I just love what they are as well. I love the work that everyone on those sort of committees did, the artists, obviously, for, for putting that together. Um, people who design fonts, for example, um, who we might know. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do think they look fucking great. And in particular, in particular, I think the Highbury one is just off the charts off mm. the charts it just looks so good as that huge panel on the side of the stadium and the the various details and everything else but i just think it fits so well they look amazing they do i mean that one is pretty great um i completely agree about the text-based ones that they're kind of less uh exciting to look at as a little jpeg on twitter but mm. when on the stadium they're very very impactful um I think that 1886 one is, is very cool. Um, I, I, I think the hybrid one might be my favourite just because it sort of marries. Yeah. Know, it's brilliant from a distance because you see that sort of Art Deco facade and have all those connotations, but then there is so much detail within it. So it's sort of rewarding uh, mm. at, at both distances. Um, but, you know, credits to the club. They look fantastic and... Uh, I think there's still one or two to go up. I think there I are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, I love the one with the – I was sort of – again, when you see it um, as a picture, the one with all the various flags yeah. of the supporters groups um, from all over the world. But it looks great on, on the stadium, and um, I think it just shows you – 
what a global club Arsenal is. Mm-hmm. That the support that we have from every corner of the world is now represented on the, on the outside of the stadium. And just going back to the to the Ivan Tony thing in, in a little way, you know, this is a, a hugely a club that is massively inclusive. You know, mm-hmm. people with fans from from all over the world. So for anybody to sort of level racist abuse at at an opposition player, you know, it just is completely contrary to the values of. Arsenal as an institution, you know the best values that that we uh, that we have as a football club. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think those things they they just look so so good, um, and it was amazing to see people walking around all weekend, like loads of people getting to the ground early and just sort of wandering around and looking up yeah, and, yeah. and taking pictures. And I ran into Clive actually outside. He was taking pictures of the one, um, the one where the guy at the front kind of looks like you. You know that one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do know the one you meant. Yeah, yeah. I was going, Jesus, uh, he did well to get himself up I'm there. Ar- I'm he? right there, front Fucking and centre. Fucking hell. Like, yeah, yeah, there you are in your old kit. I know. Martin Keown. And then, oh, okay, that's not, <laughs> it's not James. It just, it just looks a little bit like him. You should tell people that's you, though. That would be amazing. Yeah, there I am. There, yeah, yeah. I will, yeah. I'll, I'll hang around outside <laughs> that one waiting for people to kind of ask me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, they look great, and it's it's very cool. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the seeing the extra two. I think there's yeah, I think there's two more to come. Mm, be yeah, because there was two blank spaces, so I don't know right. exactly. There's one. There's a the fans collage and fans collage. One. And I think there's one about maybe that's about the academy, um, but Let I'm not sure. See, I do have the the which one didn't I see? I do have the pictures. Uh, no, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, we'll find out in due course, though, I guess. We will. Uh, okay. Well, look, we'll leave it there for now. Um, there's still plenty to come, of course. Uh, over on Patreon, we'll have our preview podcast for the Manchester City game. We'll also have an episode of The 30, looking back on the weekend's Premier League action. That'll be uh, tomorrow as well, Tuesday. So two podcasts for you tomorrow over on Patreon. We're going to do an extra Arsecast Extra for you on Thursday. This is a big game on Wednesday. As such, it deserves some big podcasting attention. So we'll have an extra extra for you on Thursday. Do join us for that. Uh, in the meantime, take it easy. Hope the nerves aren't too jangly between now and Wednesday night. Thanks as ever for listening, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. <laughs>